Hello. Thanks for clicking in. This is Get Ready for Sunday, a weekly podcast previewing the scripture readings designated for the Masses to be celebrated in Catholic churches on the upcoming Sunday. I'm Deacon Mark from Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Tucson, Arizona. I'm not here to preach at you. I'm here to share some background and context information gathered from the work of genuine scripture scholars and thoughtful commentators, but it is all sifted through my own tiny brain. This episode will be a look at the Mass for October 24, 2021, the 30th Sunday in Ordinary Time of Year B in the Lectionary Cycle. If you'd like to have your eyes on the Scripture readings as I talk about them, simply go to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops website. It's usccb.org. In the top navigation bar, select Daily Readings. Scroll down to the date for the Mass and click in. Today, we'll consider the readings in the same order that you'll hear them proclaimed at Mass. First up is a reading from the 31st chapter of the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Now, it's been a while since Jeremiah showed up in the Mass readings, so maybe a short review about him might be in order. Jeremiah is called one of the five major prophets in our Old Testament. Recall that the designation major or minor refers only to the length of a prophet's written work. Jeremiah's book of 52 chapters is second in length only to Isaiah's 66 chapters, and you might remember the book of Isaiah took more than one man and about 200 years to complete. Jeremiah was a young man when called to be a prophet around the year 626 B.C., He was famously reluctant to take the job. He claimed he was too young and unprepared. Nonetheless, he continued in it until his death around the year 587 B.C. Jewish tradition recognizes him as very prolific, writing the book of Jeremiah, both the first and second book of Kings, and the book of Lamentations. He's also credited with saving the Ark of the Covenant from the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem by hiding it in a cave on Mount Nebo. He did a great job. It's still missing. Jeremiah is sometimes called the weeping prophet because his prophecies to the Judeans were extremely dismal and, no surprise, as a result he was very unpopular. At the time of Jeremiah's ministry, the Jewish people were divided into two kingdoms, Israel in the north with ten tribes, and Judah in the south with two tribes. By the time of Jeremiah, the northern kingdom of Israel had already been overrun by the Assyrians, and Judah would soon fall to the Babylonians. Jeremiah served as God's prophet for five kings of Judah. King Josiah was the first, and he had inherited a mess. Josiah's grandfather was King Manasseh. He killed the prophet Isaiah by sawing him in half. Josiah was a good and pious king and attempted to implement many reforms. His efforts had little effect. The Jewish people had long since fallen into idolatry and pagan practices. Reform was too little and too late to redeem the conduct of his people. The Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem followed. 
Jeremiah's prophetic book has essentially three main prophecies. First, if the Jewish people did not repent, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar would conquer and sack Jerusalem. His prophecy was rejected and the Judeans did not heed God's warning. Number two, through Jeremiah, God promised that if the Judeans capitulated to the Babylonians, they would suffer 70 years of exile, but after that time, God would restore them as a people and their land could be reclaimed. The Judeans rejected this prophecy. They instead opposed the Babylonians and suffered a devastating slaughter. And third, once in exile, Jeremiah warned them not to revolt against Nebuchadnezzar and trust that God would restore Israel as he had promised. Once again, they rejected his prophecies, attempted a revolt, and suffered another catastrophic failure. Bringing such dire messages, it's easy to understand why Jeremiah's prophecies were not popular and why he attracted very few followers. He became so frustrated ministering to the Judeans on God's behalf that he actually tried to quit. But he couldn't do it. As he himself wrote, God's word welled up in him like a fire and he found he could not keep it to himself. As a result of his numerous unpopular prophecies, Jeremiah suffered numerous punishments. Ultimately, he was forcibly taken to Egypt, and there he was killed. The reading at this Mass from chapter 31 of Jeremiah's book is about the second of his prophetic warnings. The Babylonians had conquered Judea and Jerusalem, through Jeremiah, God is now telling his chosen people to accept their enslavement, for if they do repent and return to devout worship of him, he will bless them and restore them to the land. Here is our reading from the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, Shout with joy for Jacob, exult at the head of the nations, proclaim your praise, and say, The Lord has delivered his people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them back from the land of the north. I will gather them from the ends of the world, with the blind and the lame in their midst, the mothers and those with child. They shall return as an immense throng. They departed in tears, but I will console them and guide them. I will lead them to brooks of water on a level road so that none shall stumble. For I am a father to Israel. Ephraim is my firstborn. The Word of the Lord. Here God looks beyond all the present destruction to give his people a glimpse at the glory that is possible. Chapter 31 covers much of the time leading up to the fall of both the northern kingdom and Judah. Previous chapters in Jeremiah detail the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar and the beginning of the Babylonian captivity. In Israel's history, the Babylonian captivity is arguably as significant as the 400 years of slavery in Egypt and the exodus from there. Following the Babylonian captivity, Israel did not again become corrupted by the idolatry of surrounding nations. A revival among Jews took place after their return to Israel, and the rebuilding of the great temple took place. 
As God had promised through Jeremiah, the Babylonian Empire fell to the armies of Persia in 539 BC, and ultimately the Jewish people were set free. Subsequently, the great temple was restored, but God's presence in the cloud, known as the Shekinah, that enveloped the great temple and the Holy of Holies, did not return to the temple. Neither was the Ark of the Covenant returned to the temple. In the Christian view, that presence would be restored a few centuries later. That restoration came when a young Jewish mother and her husband presented their firstborn son 40 days after his birth, according to Jewish custom. We celebrate this every year on February 2nd, the Feast of the Presentation of the Lord. Psalm 126 is the source of the responsorial. It is well paired with the promise of restoration to the land we just heard from Jeremiah, as it was apparently composed to be prayed and sung by pilgrims on the way up to Jerusalem. The refrain, which I'll read only at the beginning and the end, is the central theme. All verses point to it. Here it is. The Lord has done great things for us. We are filled with joy. When the Lord brought back the captives of Zion, we were like men dreaming. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with rejoicing. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad indeed. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the torrents in the southern desert. Those that sow in tears shall reap rejoicing. Although they go forth weeping, they shall come back rejoicing, carrying their sheaves. The Lord has done great things for us. We are filled with joy. Reading number two consists of the first six verses of chapter 5 from the letter to the Hebrews. In case you've forgotten, we call it a letter, although it was probably first a sermon. We say it's to the Hebrews, which means the non-Greek-speaking Jewish men and women who became followers of Jesus, even though it seems to have been written originally in a highfalutin form of Greek. Falutin being a technical linguistic term, I'm told. Last Sunday's reading from Hebrews introduced Jesus as the new high priest for all peoples. This week, we continue with that theme. Give a listen, then I'll look at its content. A reading from the letter to the Hebrews. Brothers and sisters, every high priest is taken from among men and made their representative before God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal patiently with the ignorant and erring, for he himself is beset by weakness, and so for this reason must make sin offerings for himself as well as for the people. No one takes this honor upon himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, it was not Christ who glorified himself in becoming high priest, but rather the one who said to him, You are my son, this day I have begotten you. 
just as he says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Word of the Lord. The first section of this passage is pretty clear. For one thing, there are no self-proclaimed high priests, no legitimate ones anyway. They are chosen and appointed by God. High priests are sinful humans, just like everyone else. The hereditary priesthood within the Levite tribe had its beginning with God's choice of Aaron, the brother of Moses, at the beginning of the Jewish reoccupation of their promised lands. And finally, we get to what, for me, is the more interesting reference, Melchizedek. He's mentioned twice in the Hebrew Bible, first in chapter 14 of the book of Genesis, and he shows up again in Psalm 110. As he appears in Genesis, he is the king of Salem. That's an ancient name for Jerusalem, not the supposedly witch-infested town of colonial America. Melchizedek is not only a king, but also a Canaanite priest. He blesses Abram after a victory in battle. That Abram is portrayed here as a military commander is incongruous with all the other mentions of Abram, the gentle nomadic patriarch. Melchizedek declares Abram to have been made victorious by God Most High, and is then given one-tenth of the lands retaken by Abram. God Most High is the name of the highest-ranking god in the Canaanite pantheon. For his part, Abram took the title to be compatible with Yahweh, and so accepted the blessing. Melchizedek uses bread and wine in the blessing ceremony. It's unclear whether that was part of the ceremony or simple hospitality. Assuming that it had ceremonial significance, some see it as a prefiguring of the Eucharist. Beyond that connection, the event is taken as a foreshadowing of the religious importance of Jerusalem, the combined role of both priest and king given to rulers of the area, and the future loyalty of Abram's descendants to the Jewish king in Jerusalem. It's worth noting that the name Jesus is not used in this passage. Rather, the title Christ is used. You'll recall Christ is the Greek for one who is anointed. Use of this title reminds the audience that both kings and priests are anointed in this period, thus making a claim for the roles that Jesus fulfills. A later chapter of Hebrews will describe Melchizedek in these words. Without father, mother, or ancestry, without beginning of days or end of life, thus made to resemble the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. There are indeed some wild origin stories about Melchizedek that appear in other ancient texts. None of these texts are considered canonical, that is, an inspired part of sacred texts, by either Jewish or most Christian churches. How wild are the stories? How about being born from the corpse of his mother after her death? No role played by his father, nor presumably by any other male, in his conception, and the infant speaking in full sentences immediately from birth. If you want more details, go find a copy of the second book of Enoch. 
Genesis gives no information about his origin, but by including this exotic no father, no mother, no date of birth or death description, the preacher in Hebrews is offering Melchizedek as a prefiguring of Jesus the Christ. Also, later in the letter, the author suggests that the association of the high priesthood of Jesus with Melchizedek, a priest forever, no date of birth or death, remember, puts that priesthood on an entirely different and superior plane in contrast to the Levite priesthood, which consisted of many mortal men, stemming from Aaron. And now to the Gospel. At this Mass, we come to the final miracle healing story in Mark's Gospel, Jesus giving sight to the blind beggar Bartimaeus. This is also the final scene Mark gives us before Jesus and his disciples entered Jerusalem to great shouts of honor and joy from the people of the city. We have a version of this healing in all three synoptic Gospels. Mark gives us his name. This is unusual. In Mark's Gospel, Jairus, whose daughter Jesus raises from the dead, is the only other person besides Jesus and his disciples who is named before the Passion narrative begins. Mark tells us Jesus and his followers were leaving Jericho when this scene occurred. Matthew also puts it there on the timeline, but he makes it the story of two blind men and names neither one of them. Luke also omits the name, and he places the incident as Jesus and his followers are approaching the city. Bartimaeus is sitting by the side of the road. Symbolically, he is approaching the way of Jesus, but is not yet on the way. Significantly, all three evangelists have the blind man or men using the same appellation, son of David, and the same initial request, have pity or mercy on me or us. Bartimaeus is the first person in Mark's Gospel to call Jesus Son of David, a messianic title. And that title shouted loudly in a crowd is a reference not just to the royal lineage of Jesus. It also refers to the epitome of David's sons, King Solomon, who was frequently seen as a healer and a magician, a wonder worker. Bartimaeus, who has no physical sight, recognizes the importance of Jesus better than those who see, even better than the disciples. The blind man is immediately praising the saving role of Jesus. So much for the messianic secret marks Jesus has been guarding. But given the proximity to his final entry into Jerusalem, it just seems to be time to let the secrecy be broken. In the culture of the day, for Bartimaeus to use that title for Jesus would be seen as a favor of granting honor. Then comes the general request, have pity on me. In the language of the day, this connoted one's willingness to pay one's debts. We could read this as Jesus owing a return favor to Bartimaeus. Well played, Bart. The Greek verb here, translated as pity or mercy, 
carries the connotation of doing something to intentionally relieve the suffering of the one seeking help. This also shows Bartimaeus possessing confidence in the power of Jesus to do just that. Mark gives us some other interesting details about the incident. Bartimaeus, he writes, throws off his cloak. Many commentators point to this as symbolic of leaving behind his old life of blindness, even leaving behind what alms he might have collected already during that day, even before experiencing the healing itself. We have something of another Markin sandwich here, too. That is, two similar stories wrapping around a separate set of teachings. The journey now coming to an end with this cure of blindness began with another man who was blind being given sight by Jesus. Remember him? Perhaps not, since his story is not among the gospel passages read at Sunday Masses. It's in Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 26. There are some interesting contrasts in the two stories. The first man is brought to Jesus by others. Bartimaeus has others trying to keep him away. The first man is fully healed only after Jesus touches his eyes two times. Bartimaeus's eyes are fully opened without any touch. Just a word from Jesus does the job. Jesus takes the first man away from the crowd to perform the healing. Jesus proclaims Bartimaeus healed in full view of everyone. The first man is sent home in silence. Bartimaeus immediately joins Jesus on the way forward. Read both stories. See what else you think is different. Here is the story for this Mass. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. As Jesus was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a sizable crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind man, the son of Timaeus, sat by the roadside begging, on hearing that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have pity on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he kept calling out all the more, Son of David, have pity on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage, get up. Jesus is calling you. He threw aside his cloak, sprang up, and came to Jesus. Jesus said to him in reply, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man replied to him, Master, I want to see. Jesus told him, Go your way. Your faith has saved you. Immediately he received his sight and followed him on the way. The Gospel of the Lord Despite his physical disadvantages, Bartimaeus clearly understands Jesus' identity. He is persistent, willing to overcome obstacles in his way. He knows Jesus can and expects Jesus will heal him. It is similar to the account of the woman suffering a long-term hemorrhage, in chapter 5 of Mark's Gospel. Bartimaeus expects a transformation. Jesus, when he hears the blind man's cries, 
tells the onlookers to call Bartimaeus forward. In what was perhaps a subtle rebuke to the crowd, Jesus has those who sought to stop Bartimaeus now assisting Jesus as he ministers to him. When they meet, Bartimaeus asks for the right thing. Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? Master, I want to see. Immediately he received his sight and followed him on the way. Remember Jesus asking James and John the same question last week? What do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus replies with a simple request, voiced with confidence that Jesus can deliver. Bartimaeus seeks no special privileges. Rather, he asks to better know the reality of the world. He has already demonstrated a keen spiritual insight. Now he has a clear view of all that surrounds him. When it comes to understanding Jesus, the disciples James and John seem more blind than Bartimaeus. Again, thanks for clicking in. I hope this was useful to you. If you think it might be useful for others, tell them to search Get Ready for Sunday just about anywhere podcasts are available. I pray you are able to celebrate the Eucharist this week in person or online, however it is possible for you. And may Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit bless you richly.